Hello again, this is BJ with Taste of the Wind for episode two of the Taste of the Wind podcast. If you haven't heard of us before, we are a small farm based out of Centennial, Wyoming that is in the southeast corner of the state. We raise ethical, sustainable, and local lamb, chicken, pork, and free-range eggs. And we work with a couple other producers who share the same values as us to offer grass-finished beef as well as other products to our customers. This week, we're talking with a producer by the name of Bridger Rairdon. He's with Rairdon Beef out of Laramie, Wyoming, a small beef operation raising Highland Galloway Angus cattle. We are huge fans of the Rairdons. We have known them for quite a few years. Uh, we went to college with Bridger, and I've worked a couple jobs with him. We've been to a couple of their brandings, and we've worked their cattle with them for a couple of years. And we are huge fans of how they raise their beef and how they treat the land, and how their beef tastes. It truly is a great product. So that's why we wanted to offer that to our customers. And I wanted to interview Bridger to get a little more of the inside scoop on his operation for you guys. Please remember, if you want to get on our email list, you can go to our website, www.tasteofthewind.com. And keep in mind that our bulk beef deposits, the best way to get beef from these producers that we're interviewing on this podcast, place your deposit by March 1st. You can access that on our online store, which is also available on our website. Uh, I also wanted to remind you guys that we are doing monthly meat giveaways this year. So getting on the email list is a great way to be the first to know about when these giveaways are available and how to enter. If you'd like to purchase beef from any of the producers that we're interviewing on this series, you can get on our website and place your deposit by March 1st. This will qualify you for our free Meet Your Rancher giveaway, which is three experiences that you can get the chance to meet your rancher, the cattle that they work with, and get to know the land that they work on. Uh, one of these is a four-person cattle drive with Ed Siegel and Centennial Valley Beef. Another one is a one-night stay at the Airbnb on the Balzen Ranch with Blake and Helen and the Longhorns that they raise. And the third is a branding experience with the Rairdon family, which we are going to talk to today. Bridger is the son of Tom and Jenny Rairdon, who have been in Laramie for quite a while and they've raised beef for quite a while as well. So they're all great families and they are very excited to meet you guys. So go ahead and get your deposit in by March 1st so you can be entered in this giveaway for free. All right, here's the podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it thoroughly and I will talk to you guys again afterwards. I think it would be good to start off, though, if you wanted to briefly describe your operation, where you guys run your cattle, about how big your herd is, and, you know, just a basic rundown of what you guys do for people who aren't involved in agriculture. Okay. Yeah, we're we're a cow-calf to finish operation. We currently are, are pretty pretty small um in size we only got about 40 to 50 cows and probably with just drought and hay prices are going down a a little bit in our numbers um for this coming year and we run on all lease grant ground surrounding the laramie area and 
um, we're kind of unconventional in, in how we run. We picked up a lot of a lot of smaller size leases, um, like forty to eight, eighty acre lots uh, that are kind of more in um, kind of urban rural um, interface almost, and that no one else in ag really would want to graze or um, could graze necessarily. And we, we come in with poly wire electric fencing and fence those areas off to contain our cattle and um, spend you know, anywhere from a couple days to maybe two weeks in some of those smaller um, acreages and then move on uh, kind of to our next lease as, as the grazing season goes. So is it mostly because those parcels are so small that most other ranchers wouldn't want to bother with them? That's the main reason. Um, and then I think the being so small, people wouldn't want to bother with them. And then also, you know, you have to have uh, really good uh, kind of relationships with uh a lot of different people of, of all walks of life. And I, I think that can, can be difficult at, at times um, for a lot of people to, to navigate and, and try to figure out. And um, We're kind of just doing it because it's the only way that we've been able to uh, acquire a land base and graze our cattle. And it seems like you and your dad don't have trouble establishing and maintaining relationships the way you need to. We don't, you know, every, every year there's some people that do, do say, you know, we, we liked having the cows there, but you know, it maybe was too much of a hassle, um, for them or they, they felt that, um, it didn't add a whole lot of benefit. Um, and so, you know, we have, we have some turnover, but we're constantly adding new, new leases, um, as well. And, you know, I think that's just, uh, people's individual choices sometimes they they think the idea is is a good idea and then you know once the cows are there yeah occasionally a cow does does get out and they've got to make a phone call to us to come put the cow back in so other than the structure of your business and your um cattle herd and how you run them what makes your beef different you know, we run a, a Scottish Highland um, kind of base genetic uh, using Galloway and Angus bulls as crosses. And I, I think there's a lot of merit to uh, just Scottish Highland genetics for beef production. I think the way that they, they put on fat uh, is a lot different uh, than other breeds. And I think it makes for tender and a more juicy, um, flavorful product. And... You know, we we finish everything out on grass, and I think that really uh, adds to the flavor profile of the beef as well. And you know, they're they're out on grass, three sixty five with a little bit of hay supplement in the winter time. And you know, I I personally think that's just how a animal is supposed to be raised and spend their life while while they're here. And I I think our our product, you know, my dad and I like to joke that full of our, our love and, and kind of their love and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah. you know, they just got a, a pretty good life, I think, overall. Can you describe a little bit more what that difference is in the way that Highlands put fat on? You said there it contributes to the steaks and makes them more tender and juicy, but is that more 
marbling or something different? Well, the way, to my knowledge on how the Highlanders kind of put put fat on within the meat is a lot of breeds, they'll have in, intramuscular fat that um, kind of goes through the fibers of the meat, while the Highlander genetics, they will actually kind of have little globular balls or fat pockets that um, kind of melt more into the meat during the cooking process, and that allows for just a, a tender and flavorful product that you don't always get with uh, your typical store-bought beef. So it's that beef that when you take a bite of it, it kind of dissolves on your tongue rather than your whole mouth getting coated with fat. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, I think with as our finishing process gets better and better, we, we get a, a more tender uh, product at the end of the day, and that's, that's because we're doing a better job of um, building that fat into those steaks and, and those cuts. Awesome. You're making me hungry. <laughs> I hope you ate dinner already. <laughs> I did. Good, I did. good. Um, are there any other reasons why you raise beef the way you do, other than the ones you've already talked about? You know, I, I think really the the way that we're raising these beef, it's largely a land access uh, deal for us where we are kind of forced to, to do it differently since we have no land of our own we can run on. And so we kind of just have to get creative with how we, we run, run our beef. And this so far has been a way that we've been able to kind of Oh, open the door into this grass finishing world for ourselves. And, um, you know, we, we really do try to pride ourselves in, in just taking care of the animals as best as we can. And that's, that's kind of what we, we try to do every day. Yeah. What are your top three amazing things about your beef that your customers can appreciate? You know, I think uh, number one for me, is, and I have a very strong bias, but I, I think our, our flavor for our beef is um, some of the best out there, especially in the, the grass finishing world. I have had grass finished steaks that, you know, people have, have put a lot of work into their genetics and, um, you know, really gone above and beyond when it comes to making sure that they have animals that, um, you know, marble well and, and put on fat well and, you know, that their steaks are good, but the, the flavor just isn't anything anything like what the Scottish Highland genetics uh, provide and what the, the Laramie Valley um, and Centennial Valley uh, hard grasses uh, add, add to that flavor as well. Number two um, on that list would be that sets our beef apart is just the just the way that we raise them, you know, they, they really don't ever have a bad day on until, well, I'd say branding and castrating maybe is their first bad day. And then they have a a second bad day and it's, it's when they go to the butcher shop. You know, I I think our cattle really have a, a a great life and they never have to spend any time in a feedlot and they get to be out on grass, on pasture, the, the way that, uh, cows are meant, 
meant to be um, raised, ultimately. And they don't have bad views most of the time, either. <laughs> no, the shoot, they've got some of the best office views out there. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, uh, I, I think all the, the third thing that sets our beef apart would uh, just be the the way that we, we finish them. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of other people are, are figuring out how to finish cattle on grass uh, efficiently and effectively, but we really strive to have, at least during the last five months of that that uh, steers or heifer's life, um, they are on irrigated kind of high high elevation uh, mountain meadows and for sure for the last two months I mean they they don't have to walk more than a hundred yards to water and they are always they have a great balance between you know um, irrigated pasture and uh, you know good hard grass kind of prairie and they get just a good blend of everything that they might want and they really have it easy that that last month two months so they're going to the and, uh, for the last couple months of their life and fully enjoying it yeah yeah and it, it literally could be called a resort uh, with how fancy that ranch is but <laughs> yeah they they just have a you know and we we've struggled honestly with our finishing process um in the past, but I think we've really been able to, to figure out how to um, provide a, a well-finished product, and I think we're, we're only getting better at it. And it, it really is just good, high-elevation pasture um, that has, you know, that can provide green grass all the way up in, into the fall. Yeah. What in particular makes your beef good for the environment? So I think the fact um, that we aren't feeding any grain in their diet, and, you know, a lot of grain production is revolves around heavy uh, mechanical fertilizing and, you know, coal and oil inputs, essentially, um, that our cows just never need other than the trucking uh, between pastures. And we try to actually trail our cows between a lot of our, our leases. When you say trail, walk them on foot walk them on usually on horseback or on foot either one okay. um, and then also the way that we graze you know we we really try to not take um, more than the land will will give us in in that year and you know our grazing management i think has just gotten better and better where you look at a lot of pastures we've grazed, especially early in the year where we've even maybe gone through it once or twice, and you look at it in the fall, and it's, it's pretty difficult to tell that we've grazed there. And we're always rotating, or at least attempting to rotate, those pastures um, throughout the year, or, or throughout multiple years on when and how we, we graze um each pasture so that it kind of has that chaos that nature naturally has. Um, mm -hmm. So you're, you're never doing it the same each time. And I, I think that's kind of how uh, the environment um, just naturally works. Yeah. It's less like a lawnmower going across a field that way. Yeah. Yeah. And we always are trying to, to switch it up and, and do it differently the next year than we did it the year before and 
and plan for that each, each time. And, you know, sometimes it looks like maybe you've overgrazed, but when you actually have the context behind it, it's like, well, that that's just how that was planned for that year, and then next year it might not ever get grazed. Yeah. So, just you know, like it like gets that rest and recovery as well. Just like what the elk tend to do in this valley. They hit one spot in the spring, and then next year they may go somewhere else. Exactly, exactly. So what makes your beef good for our community? I think, you know, by supplying food food products, and in our case, beef, uh, it it allows com- community to kind of become tighter and strengthen when people in the community know where their food is coming from. Mm-hmm. And they also um, are able to, you know, interact with the, the rancher, the, the farmer. And I think that's that's really important from a community standpoint to, to know those things and have those interactions. And I, I think also it kind of, connects each person within the community that's buying our beef that, you know, they, they also then potentially have something in common that they, they can, uh, you know, agree upon and, and talk about and maybe, you know, make, make a new friend out of the whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. And how about the folks that you guys are leasing land from? Is it a benefit to them as well? I would yes, I would definitely say so. I think you know they get economic benefit, um, in in the form of a, a cash payment, and then also for a lot of the people that we lease from, we're helping them maintain ag status for their property taxes, and it adds another layer of economic benefit. And then you know we have a lot of people that we lease from where they have younger kids and their kids get to come out and see the cows and how how we graze and how we work cattle and help us out here and there and um even you know older people that we lease from i think it's they a lot of them really enjoy just seeing cows out there at on their property grazing and and not not you know necessarily overgrazing and actually the environment and their little little parcel of land as well um giving the community a chance to participate in local ag as well. Very much so. In what way would your operation be good for agriculture as a whole? Well, as a whole, I think um, ag needs to shift to more of a local, regional um, kind of food market and agricultural market. And I think our operation is one of many that is helping show and and lead the way in in one one way of of doing it and how you can you know bring community people and food all all together and um also while having good land management practices and i i think that's something that the agricultural community as a whole needs to really start striving or is better better land management and better land practices and also connecting the consumer with the food that they're eating. Um, I, I 
think our operation is, is just one of many that is yeah, helping show how that, that may be done. Did you call your operation a trailblazing operation? <laughs> oh, by no means. <laughs> I, we've copied a, a lot of things uh, from other trailblazers. So, um, you know, we just made it fit for us and work for us. What are some of the model operations you guys have looked to to design your own? I think from a small lease um, grazing setup, we kind of looked at um, guys like Greg Judy, who's kind of a leader in the industry in Missouri, of putting together a lot of these smaller leases. Now in Missouri, it's a lot different because uh, 40 acres is a lot different than 40 acres in Wyoming and can run a whole lot more cattle. Um, I think there's also, there was a a fella out of South Dakota that was also doing a very um, similar leasing deal and we've kind of borrowed some stuff from him as well. And then with our electric fencing, we've stolen that from hundreds and hundreds of different producers. I don't know who necessarily really started using that that um, polywire electric fencing first, but you know we're just one of many that have, have borrowed that as one of our tools. Yeah, and then I would also say we've all we've followed a lot of like holistic management um, practices that originated with Alan Savory. Um, who is a kind of world-renowned grazer and um, scholar um, out of South Africa? You know, there's there's just there's so many different people we've we've borrowed stuff from and we've adapted it to to fit our needs. Uh, there's just probably too many to list. <laughs> well, that's a good start in case people want to look into your practices a little bit more. They can look up those names and find out what it really means. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. What are some objections or questions you have heard from customers? And what are your answers or justification for them? You know, we we have heard from a few customers why we don't feed grain um, to our cattle and I think our our kind of basic answer to to all those is that you know cattle evolved with grass and they they weren't really meant to ever eat uh, a high grain diet and we're just trying to to raise animals as naturally as we possibly can um, to kind of mimic. Um, nature as close as we can and uh, i've had other customers ask specifically you know what the difference is between grass finished and and grain finished and in like the flavor and quality of meat and you know i think grain finished beef does potentially have a place but on a much smaller scale and I think the biggest thing that uh, grain finished beef does provide is it provides a really consistent, um, easy to grow product. And while grass finishing is is I think more challenging to do it correctly and well, 
you know, I think you just get a, a much broader flavor profile in the meat, and you, when when done right, it is just really a, ultimately, I think a a more unique, flavorful product that that really has um, kind of a it's it's like a fine wine or a fine cheese, you know. A, well-finished animal in the Laramie Valley or Centennial Valley is not going to maybe taste the same as a well-finished animal, grass-finished animal in um, California or in Missouri. And they're all, they're going to just have a uniqueness about it um, that I don't think a a grain-finished animal uh, would ever really have or you'd ever be able to tell. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, I mean, that's their goal is to pre- to create ground beef or a steak that's going to taste the same every time you buy it. So there's no surprises there when you're going yeah. to the grocery store. But when and I, I think there is a, a need for consistency within grass finishing as well. You know, you don't want to have a, a grass finished product that isn't finished properly and, and, you know, market something that is not, that is kind of, below most people's standards and so there there is a there's there's a balance um, Mm -hmm. between all of that yeah but more it's probably more within an operation a consistency within one operation for grass finishing rather than across the board of all operations exactly what is your favorite part of raising beef personally my my favorite thing is actually um, working with livestock and, and working on my livestock handling skills. You know, and that's something that I've become more in tune with over the last couple of years, and specifically even in the last year, where it's to really fun to watch the nuances of how how you work cattle and and sheep too, or just any livestock animal and kind of get a feel for you know what is what is low stress livestock handling and what does that look like and how how do animals respond to to that and i all animals are a little different or all herds are a little different um my cows sometimes i think are a little too docile (laughs) where i almost it would almost be better if i went had a little brought a little higher energy at times to just get them to walk not not run but just walk a little faster um Mm -hmm. you know they're they're kind of lazy and just they they go with the flow well they're slow you put them out at the resort and they're gonna be on vacation they're not in a hurry to get anywhere (laughs) yeah yeah no it's yeah i i think just livestock handling is one of my favorite things and and just spending time time with animals you know i i think that's can be a you know some of the most peaceful moments in in a person's day yeah that's great um why have you chosen this path in life because you are working on another ranch right now so you must want involved in ranching (laughs) i you know there's a lot of days i wonder uh why i I chose this path um i think it's a it's a really 
really hard uh, path to go down, but you, it can be done, and it, it can can bring a lot of joy and, and fun and happiness to life. Um, you know, I I grew up on a sheep ranch originally, and I really enjoyed working with the livestock and working with good border collies. And for some reason, kind of as I was getting in junior high and high school, I lost touch with a lot of that. And, you know, my family did ultimately sell, sell the ranch. And I kind of was at the point where I had no interest in agriculture or, or ranching or anything like that. And I, yeah, I took a rangeland ecology class in college and kind of made me start remembering or questioning some of the things and ways that my dad had done it when I was uh, growing up as a kid and um, just kind of brought back some of the, the, the good memories I had from growing up on a ranch and how maybe I wanted to live my life and I thought that, you know, it could be a, a pretty good way uh, to, to live, live life. So I ended up buying some of my own cows and kind of never looked back. Um, there's, there's days I, I, I scratch my head and wonder why I have cows or, or I'm in, in this business. Cause I think it is a really, unfortunately is a really hard business, um, to be in on more on the economic and financial side. And it, it can be very frustrating at times, but, um, there's also more more good good things uh, than bad things, and and so you you keep kind of plowing through anything that comes up that isn't so great, and trying to figure out how to do it better. Awesome. Um, what does the future of food production agriculture look like in your mind? I would I would like it. To be um, a more local, regional-based food system, um, where consumers are connected with producers and vice versa, and are you know, kind of consumers and producers together are, are building community, and uh, you know, practicing on the producer and practicing good land management um, techniques, and on the consumer end, um, you know buying nutritious healthy food products what hopes do you have for your future customers concerning how your beef will affect their lives you know i i hope that for any future uh customers that you know they just really enjoy our beef and um that they know that you know it's coming from uh producer that that really cares about uh their livestock and and how they graze and how you know their land management techniques and that they are um you know just happy and content with uh, the product that they're getting and that they know that it's it's helping kind of everything that we've talked about you know build build better and healthier landscapes, uh, build better and healthier communities and, you know, allows for producers to have a healthy and, and happy lifestyle.
you know, financially and economically viable. Yeah, which is not the case in today's ag climate, it seems. Yeah, unfortunately, no, it's not. Is there anything you want your customers to know or anything you want to say directly to them? Just, you know, enjoy eating local beef and uh, local foods in general. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for the business. (laughs) Awesome. Um, What is one way our customers can be more connected to what you're doing and how can they be more supportive of your effort to raise sustainable beef? I would I would say uh, you know if they they like our beef and our finished product uh, tell your friends and family and tell them where you got beef and uh, just kind of pass the word along that hey you can get more of it um, here and um, it's a you know these are what the the people on on the ground raising livestock are, are doing and word of mouth is a lot of how we've developed our um, direct marketing. It's not the best way to necessarily grow it, but it's a, a way to get a foot in the door. What world or community issues keep you awake at night? Well, I think land management as a whole and the, the loss of our uh, topsoils, I don't know if they keep me awake anymore at night, but I worry <laughs> about it. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I, I think also just div- division with within humanity to an extent. Where you know, I, I think we're all we're all on the same boat. Um, so let's try to figure out how to to actually get our sails up and get going, rather than kind of dilly daddling. Working together and building community. Yeah. How does what you do relate to these things that you worry about? Well, I think in the way that uh, my dad and I try to graze our our cattle and um, raise our our, our beef um, is the biggest way that that we address land management techniques, where we are we try to be very diligent in how we graze and why we graze and. We allow for rest and recovery and are, you know, trying trying to build a topsoil. I don't know how effective in certain Western landscapes that is, but, um, you know, I think we do contribute to at least uh, better water cycles, better nutrient cycling, and, and better just mineral cycles in the soil as a whole. Um, we don't have really too much hard data on that. We have a a little bit um and we have shown more more plant diversity on one of our pastures that we we graze and you know i think that's that's the biggest way that we are addressing some of the things that that keep me up at night um you know and i i think also just with how we do business and how we when we come into contact with other community members you know just treating them like a, a human being and and trying to treat every person right. Well, that's funny that you say that because Ed told a story um, on his episode 
last week. One time he was stranded on the side of the road because he ran his pickup out of gas. And Tom picked him up and showed him his cattle and his horses and all that before they really knew each other. So I think... Yeah, I, I've, I've heard that story. But <laughs> no, we, we would never not pick someone up on the side of the road. Yeah, cultural obligation. I think so. And, you know, even, you know, I'm sure you have some Colorado uh, consumers, uh, but, you know, even if they had Colorado plates, we'd still <laughs> offer you a ride or, you know, change your tire for you. <laughs> well, how gracious of you. <laughs> Do you feel that you have a positive impact on the world by raising sustainable beef? I believe, you know, we do, my dad and I, and even throw my mom in there. It's a family operation, but I, yeah, I believe, I believe we, we do have a positive impact. Um, it's, it's not necessarily very big. We, we like to grow it a little bit, um, but you know what, there's a, a lot of market forces at play and, just other barriers to entry that make it really hard to uh, be in agriculture and and get a little little further ahead as well. So, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I, I think we do have a positive impact. What is your biggest challenge as a beef producer? Oh, I would right now. It's having enough of a land base to actually provide or um, myself and then my parents. Um, so basically just two different people, essentially. Uh-huh. And uh, I think we just aren't at the scale to make it economical to uh, provide um, two different, you know, salaries or, or incomes. Uh-huh. And I think the other... You know, that largely revolves around uh, land access and having access to better leases and leases that lend themselves to growing an operation and um, kind of having a little bit more, uh, oh, uh, just uh, stability, I guess, uh, long-term stability as well. So would you attribute not owning your own land as, I guess not attribute, but would you categorize that as a benefit or um, a roadblock to your operation? I think it can can be both at times. Um, I think it's a great way to get your foot in the door and get started. I think at a certain point, there does have to be some sort of change, a better or more long-term lease um, kind of come into play that is maybe a little bit uh, larger than some of the other, you know, the land base that we run on currently um, to to really get up and, and going. And so, you know, I think a lot of that stuff revolves around good connections and, and connecting with the right people and, and people that care about what you're doing mm-hmm. a pretty major, you know, level where they, they really have to, to buy into what you're doing too, um, both from a, a grazing and land management standpoint, but also from a, just a food security, uh, you know, quality food standpoint. And, you know, I think owning land is, 
yeah, it'd be it's great, but uh, it's pretty pretty dang hard to own your own land and or even own it out. You know, you might have a mortgage on it, but you still have to pay that mortgage each each year. And they just with the way that agriculture is, it's it's hard to always come up with money to to get that to make that payment and also you know pay a living wage to whoever's involved in the operation. Um, but it, owning your own land lends itself to uh, a lot more creativity in how you manage that land and how, you know, ways that you can do it even better that leasing maybe doesn't always allow. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, you know, they both have their ups and downs, owning and, and leasing. But yeah. they, I think if structure, structured correctly, um, leasing can be perfectly adequate. It's just finding the right person to lease from and having a enough of a land base to actually um, run an, enough livestock to, to generate a, a fair living wage for whoever's involved in the operation. Do you hope to stay in the beef raising industry, and why? Yeah, I, I, I mean that that's my plan at least, and um, I really want to stay in it because I really in, enjoy, uh, you know, good good grazing practices and seeing how the land responds in a positive manner when you graze correctly, so to speak, and you know I really enjoy you know, spending time with the animals and, and getting to work with them. And, um, there's, there's a lot of fulfillment from that. And I think the only thing I would say is I, I would like to also get in, into grazing sheep and running sheep more uh, along with cows. But I, I think cows at a certain point, you know, I, I probably don't want to grow, grow too much once, once I've hit a certain point. Why is that? Why do you want to branch out into raising sheep as well? You know, I think sheep and cows together have a lot of added benefits uh, to to the landscape and can really graze well together and they have different um, benefits. And, you know, quite frankly, I think sheep are just a, a little bit more fun and interesting and adaptable. Well, adapt, adaptable might be the wrong word, but you can apply sheep in a more unique way when it comes to like getting higher stocking densities and quicker um, grazes and longer recovery periods um, than you can with cattle. And, uh, I think you can do a lot more for a landscape over a shorter period of time with sheep than you can with cattle. I think they're they're just fun to work with too. Yeah. Does your dog like cattle or sheep better? It's tough to say. He, you know, he he hasn't really been around sheep much until I got up to Lusk, Wyoming, with this new job that I have, and. uh he seems to really enjoy the sheep, and it's actually made him a, a better cow dog. Now, I should have started on started him on sheep, but uh, you know, all I had were were cows.
Bowser really to work with him when I started him as a pup and he he needs to tone tone his energy down sometimes with the sheep. <laughs> yeah. That's a hard thing to a hard thing to learn for a really excited dog. <laughs> yeah. And he's young too, so I can't yeah. give him be too hard on him. Yeah. At least he's got the enthusiasm. Yeah, unless there's a rabbit that runs by and sometimes <laughs> loses his concentration. Um, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it cooked? Well, I would say honestly a 9 to 14 year old Scottish Highland cow that's been well finished. So that means like the last five to six months she's been only on green grass and um, is really fat and happy when she goes to the butcher and I like probably a flat iron or a ribeye cooked medium rare. Awesome. Why do you choose such an old animal? That's pretty unusual. I, yeah, normally I, I, well, a while ago I would never have said that, but from some of the experiments my dad and I have done with butchering some old animals, finishing out older animals, specifically Scottish Highland animals, and um, kind of taste testing the different cuts and whatnot. Um, I think it that that age allows that flavor profile to really develop, and so you get just uh, such a diversity of different flavors in the meat with that older animal that you want to get off a younger animal. She's just eaten so many different things and so much more things throughout her life and also has the fat through that finishing process to make it a very tender product. And, um, yeah, it's just some of the, the best steak I've ever had is off an older Scottish Highlander cow. That's really neat to hear. What is a funny story that you have about your cattle or your lifestyle? Well, a funny story just from the other day is we got in these sale barn cattle for my boss up here in Lusk, Wyoming, and I had straight, nice, functioning gates before they they went through everything, and by the time we got done branding and retagging them all, I, I don't think I had a single gate that wasn't bent or folded down, and I had three cows that had somehow managed to clear a six-foot pen with just a leap and a bound. But I don't know if that's funny or scary. (laughs) Well, and that's probably kind of disappointing because now you have a whole pile of gates to fix. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I don't really have a funny story. They're just kind of funny in hindsight. Thank you so much for listening to my interview of Bridger Rairdon of Rairdon Beef in Laramie, Wyoming. Bridger and I met in college a few years ago, and we've worked together a couple times since. Um, We've seen firsthand how he handles his cattle and how they treat their livestock. We've tasted their beef, and we've purchased beef from them, and we highly recommend their product. It's fantastic. When Bridger says the flavor of their beef is incredible, he is not lying. We really love their beef. Uh, Just to keep in mind, if you'd like to purchase beef from the Raritans, 
you can do that on our website, which is www.tasteofthewind.com. Make sure to get your deposit in by March 1st to be entered in our giveaway of three Meet Your Rancher experiences. One of them is joining the Reardon family for their annual calf branding. It's a grand old time. You'll get to meet Tom, Jenny, Bridger, and their cattle and learn a lot about what goes into producing our ethical local grass-finished beef. So don't forget to get your deposits in by March 1st, and we'll talk to you again soon here on the Taste of the Wind podcast. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.